Welcome back. Shalom. I'm glad to have you here as part of the Scripture Central team for First and Second Thessalonians. These possibly are the oldest books written in the entire New Testament. Some people think Galatians might precede it, but most scholars think First and Thessalonians were the first text written. And the Gospels were being compiled and in different forms, but not in the form we know them. Those came a little bit later. Um, but because they're shorter letters, um, they are placed all the way down here in the um, Pauline corpus. But they have wonderful themes. He focuses on rejoicing in the saints' faithfulness and encouragement for their progress. He encourages them to grow in charity and hope and faithfulness. They're just terrific books. Remember, he visited them on his second mission. This is part of the northern Greece area where he wanted to go to Ephesus and he was prayed over to uh, Macedonia. So he goes over there and he visits them and he's only there just a few weeks before persecution comes and chases him out. And it's even on that same mission that he's writing these letters. It, it's just a little bit later when he's in other towns. Um, he describes being in Athens and at least that's what the fourth century person wrote down. He may have been over in Corinth, which is where I probably think he was writing them from because he stayed in Corinth for 18 months after Thessalonica. So that's probably where he's writing those from. You know, we use the first Thessalonians as one of the books to say, this is Pauline. And then we attribute all the others that share the same themes and the same um, phrases. And these are the books that are attested to be written by Paul. First Thessalonians, first Corinthians, second Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, Philippians, and Philemon. The others probably were included some editing by a scribe or Paul wrote an outline or something. I don't know. We are, we are not quite sure, but we're not positive that they're completely uh, written by Paul. It was on Paul's second mission that he, he left the area that we refer to now as Turkey. He's up in Troas, which is the city of Troy. And he had stayed there and had the vision that he was coming over and, and then had left northern Macedonian and come to southern Macedonian. And then he wrote the letters from down there. Let's talk a little bit about Thessalonica and what it was. This capital area was a free city. That means they didn't have to pay taxes. That is huge. They are still under the same umbrella of Rome, but they are tax-free. The population was between 60 and 100,000, an enormous city for those days and age. And there were also many Jews there because they found both Jewish and Samaritan synagogues in the archaeological digs. There was a Roman forum, a Hellenistic stadium. There's a temple of Serapis there. Another way we can date the letter is because Paul is writing the letter with Silas. It's called Sylvanius and Timotheus. You know, they're using the Greek names, the longer endings. But in the book of Acts, this is with Silas. And Silas was with Paul only on his second mission. That's how we can date this to that time period. One more little detail about Thessalonica. Because it was this very wealthy city, archaeologists have found coins from all different countries there. They found coins with Zeus and Hera on them. They found coins from many, many, many other countries. And in fact, the city enjoyed such extensive wealth that they built temples to a lot of different people here. And Paul, when he comes, adds one more religion to this city, and that's Christianity. As you recall, between the first mission and the second mission, Paul went back to Jerusalem and said, what are we going to have the Christians that are being converted without circumcision? What are we going to have them do? How much of the law of Moses are they expected to live? So they have that Jerusalem council in about 5051 AD in Acts chapter 15 
describes it. And that is now the message that Paul took to them when he was on that second mission. Just to refresh our memories of that second mission that Paul was on, I'm going to read a little bit from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. He's talking about the synagogues of the Jews, that he'd go into the synagogues to preach. And he says that he reasoned with them out of the scriptures, and then skipping down to verse 3, that Christ suffered and was risen. And he goes on to say, of the chief women, there was not a few. You know, there were many, many women that came flocking to Christianity. And it was a wonderful experience. Even though Paul wasn't there very long, the spirit of the Lord was poured out and the message was clearly communicated that Jesus was the savior of the world. The first letter of Thessalonians is divided into two parts. There's only five short chapters. And the first part is all on rejoicing in the saints' faithfulness. And then the second part is on the encouragement for the saints' progress. So at the very beginning, um, he, this rejoicing section, he gives them their greetings of peace and thanks. He then, in chapter 2, talks about his ministry there with them and his, their reception and the opposition that came around from his message. Then in chapter 2, verse 17 to 20, his desire to visit them. And then in chapter 3, his, his uh, news from Timothy, that Timothy had been sent and visited them and gave them encouraging reports. And then the second half is this encouragement, chapter 4 and 5, where he encourages them to live and to please God and to seek sanctification and charity. In chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, he attacks sexual immorality. And then from 9 to 12, he builds up charity and self-sufficiency. In chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, he talks about that the dead saints are going to come back and they're going to be with Christ when he returns. And then the last chapter, chapter 5, the first 11 verses talk about the timing of the second coming and then the relationship with each other. In verse 16 to 22, the relationship with God. And then the last five verses, 23 to 28, Paul's final blessing and prayer. I love verse one when Paul again claims servitude. He is a servant of Christ. I can't say enough about our responsibility as disciples of Christ, as baptized members, to serve him. We need to go before him every morning and evening on our prayers and say, I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn. I'm here to serve you. What can I do? And it isn't a slothful servant who has to be commanded in all things. You know, there is much we can do to bring about righteousness. However, Paul, as an apostle, identifies himself not here as an apostle, but as a servant. And I love it. Later on, he'll identify himself as an apostle in a few verses. But chapter 1, verse 1 has a nice Joseph Smith edition. He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, you know, those are their Greek names. And then um, here is the Joseph Smith edition servants of God, the Father, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, unto the church of the Thessalonians. And then skipping down to verse 4 in the NIV, it reads, For we know, brothers and sisters, and that's obviously um, using that word delphoi for all believers. You know, it's 14 times in these letters, but it's always for disciples, regardless of the age and the gender. He continues on, those who are loved by God that he has chosen you. The idea of being chosen by God in the King James is using the word elect. You are of the elect or you are of the election. We find it seven times in the New Testament and the word means to choose out. It's either a divine selection or a general choosing, but um, it's interpreted by many Christians to say, oh, we don't have any agency. 
We're either damned or saved, and it's all up to God, and it, we trust that He knows best. But we define this very differently. And luckily, we have in the Restoration clear statements against all the points that were brought about by this Calvinistic or early Christian thought that there were some damned and, and some saved without any choice on their own. And as you recall, I've talked about this in the past, it, this type of Reformed theology is called the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Every single one of those were knocked down by Joseph Smith in the first vision. So this word is defined very differently by other people. When we say, you're beloved of God, we think, yes, I'm so grateful, but he loves all of his children. <laughs> you know, But we choose to be chosen if we are following according to section 122. Why are they not chosen? Because they care too much about the things of the world. Are you more worried about your physical appearance or are you more worried about your internal condition of your heart? Section 29 uses this word elect very early in the church. He says in verse 9, the elect hear my voice and harden not their hearts. That's the definition of the elect in the restoration. So let's take that word back now into the Pauline epistle of 1 Thessalonians and say, yes, they are those who have hardened not their hearts. Continuing on to verse 5, this is also in the NIV. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. I love the fact that the Spirit was tied to power. The Spirit can be a very powerful thing. And so I thought it would be interesting to look up how many times power is connected with the Spirit in the Scriptures. And in the Bible, I found it 10 times. And I thought, I might as well keep looking. And in the Book of Mormon, it is 57 times. Since the Book of Mormon is only a third the size of the Bible, you have to do your word ratios. And if you do the, the statistics, it turns out to be 17 times more often is the spirit linked to power within a verse or a few phrases. And then in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's even more than that when you do the word ratios. It's only 35 times, but because it's such a small book, it's actually 26 times greater than the Bible. So in the Restoration, the spirit is a powerful message and the Lord wants us to link it that way. Verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Ye become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in affliction, but with joy of the Holy Ghost. You know, Christianity was nothing for cowardly converts. This was a place for those who are willing to fight for what they believed. Those people who, who want to sit back, uh, this is not a place, especially at this time when there was so much persecution. And I feel the same thing for our day and age, too. Our religious persecution, though, I think is a lot more intellectual or emotional rather than physical. And theirs was physical, especially under, uh, you know, in a few years after this letter is written when Nero's on the throne. Continuing on to chapter 2, verse 2, he now goes back to remind them of what it was like when he was first there for those few weeks. There was a lot of animosity and there was a lot of persecution in the early church in this area. And I don't know if you remember, but in Acts chapter 17, they describe Jason, this good Christian who was imprisoned and other church leaders as well. But let's read chapter 2, verse 2 in the NIV. With the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So even with the enemy barking at the door, he opened his mouth and shared his love of our Savior. Skipping up to verse 11 and 12, still in the NIV, it reads, You know 
that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Now, that's the beauty of the gospel. Those we serve, we grow to love. We feel like we're missionaries are our children or my primary kids are my children. You know, we learn to love each other. And um, it's a gift of the Spirit. It's a gift from God. Continuing on to verse 14 in the NIV, it says, You, brothers and sisters, become imitators of God, churches in Judea, which are in Jesus Christ, because you suffered from your own people the same things that the churches suffered from the Jews. So he's saying in Jerusalem, the early Christians are suffering. And even here in Thessalonica, you guys are also suffering and you are being physically persecuted. In fact, about 50 AD in Acts chapter 17, other people were envious. So again, pride gets in the road. So Paul apologizes for not being able to stay with the saints very long. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, in the CSB, it reads, Brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. But do you remember, the Lord tells Paul, you are staying in Corinth. I need you right here. You may think this is an awful sin city, but I need you here. And that's when Paul sends Timothy up to see how they're doing and to check on them. Continuing on now in verse 19 in chapter 2 in the BSB, it reads, Who is our hope? And he skips down a little bit. And he said, You, yourselves, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. You know, initially, the Christians thought that Christ was coming immediately. And he says, I just keep this vision in my mind. How do I get through these hard times? I think of you and I imagine you with our Savior. You know, earlier in, in chapter one, he talked about that they needed to wait for Christ to come. The, the early Christians really thought this was going to happen right around the corner. Chapter three, verse four says, I kept warning you with what we would suffer persecution. And as you know, it has come to pass. That's the BSB translation. So he said, I warned you that it was going to be hard. And I'm so sorry that you are being heavily persecuted. And we are told by our prophet nowadays that it's going to get worse. Let me read to you from 2019 General Conference. The adversary is quadrupling his efforts to disrupt testimonies and impede the work of the Lord. He is arming his minions with potent weapons to keep us from partaking of the joy and love of the Lord. That is difficult. But there's opposition in all things, and the Savior will apply the greatest miracles and the greatest gifts of the Spirit to combat that. Chapter 3, verse 6 and 7 in the BSB reads, Just now, Timothy has returned from his visit with the good news about your faith, your love, and the fond memories that you have preserved, and we have been reassured. You know, the days when communication was so difficult to get. He has to send someone hundreds of miles to get the message. And he's so grateful that the saints are doing well. He continues on in verse 9 and 10 in the NIV. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly. That's verse 10. I'm sure you have done the same thing for those whom you love. And I think it is a gift of God that we can pray for each other and know that angels will be sent. I believe in the administration of angels, both mortal and immortal. Verse 11 and 13 continues on in the NIV. May our God and Father himself 
and our Lord Jesus, clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow with each other for everyone else. And then verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy when our Lord Jesus comes. A very different view. However, Paul then turns on the timing. And this is what he says here in part two. Now it's the encouragement of the saints. And this is what he says in chapter four, verse one through 12. It's all on sanctification and love. I'll read verse one. Now, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. That's the NIV translation. And then in verse two in the KJV, it says, for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So he's not giving them instructions. He is saying these came from our Savior. These are commandments from the Lord, and they are for me as well as for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 to 8, next attacks immorality. And this is a topic. Inappropriate sexual behavior is a topic in nine of his letters. This is a real problem in the Greco-Roman world. And these are brand new converts and trying to completely change the paradigm um, from their culture to the culture of God is difficult. And so in verse three and four, it reads in the NIV, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body. And then in five and six, he said, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother and sister. Don't ever take advantage of anyone, anyone. And by brother and sister, he means people in the, in the church. He's not talking about um, incest here. I hope, <laughs> I hope that wasn't a problem in, the, in Thessalonica. But continuing on to verse seven and eight, again in the NIV, it reads, God did not call us to be impure. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. You know, it's, it's going back to, he's fighting against the Epicureans. And um, I, I want to emphasize that word rejects that in the NIV, but it's also disregards God in the RSV. Now, in KJV, it's despiseth. But I also like the CEV, which is disobeys God. You know, it, when we... Um, deal with pornography or adultery or fornication or anything in the whole realm of immorality, of not living a chaste life, we are offending our God. He created our bodies for a very sacred purpose. And when we misuse that, it is, it is tragic. Paul next turns to charity and self-sufficiently. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 9. It's all the way down to verse 12, I guess. And I'll read it from the New King James Version. Now, concerning brotherly love, so that would be Philadelphia. Remember, there's all these different words for different kinds of love. Aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, that you may lack nothing. So see, this is the opposite of the Epicureans here. He's saying, you know, we are going to work hard and I don't want you being a bunch of lazy bums. Verse 17 in the JST adds some interesting differences. Um, I'll read the Joseph Smith changes. Then they who are alive shall be caught up together into the clouds with them who remain to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be ever with the Lord. Now, the word that is used here for the caught up is the same roots that we use for the word rapture. 
And this is where that beautiful Christian phrase comes from, that those who are coming as Christians from heaven and those from Christians on earth will meet together in the heavens at the coming of the Lord. And beautiful artwork try to describe this exciting, exciting time. But any of us who have had departed loved ones look forward to this day. And I look forward to meeting Paul. I look forward to being with all those saints from the time of Adam on down. Those who are with Christ will come with him in great glory and might. And remember, the world does not have to get any more wicked. The church has to become more pure, according to the book of Revelation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 and 11 now addresses the timing of the second coming. And he says in verses 1 and 2 in the NIV, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Skipping down to verse 6 in chapter 5. Let us not sleep. He's saying, let's not be passive. Let's not wait as if we were just dreaming about it. And then skipping out to verse 8, he says, Put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I don't know if you remember back in Ephesians, he talked about the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 17. And here we've got it again. Um, Another sign that these are written by the same author, the same themes come forward. He says, we've got to attack the adversary with the word of God, and we've got to use our faith and and the Savior's salvation to protect our thoughts and our head. Verse 5 to 9 reads, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Isn't this beautiful? That's our role as Christians. We're not just to comfort those members of our own congregations. We're to reach out and comfort those in all of our sphere and edify them and testify of Christ. He continues on in verses 12 to 15 to talk about relationships with each other. I love verse 12 in the NIV. Actually, I'll read 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. You know, I feel the same way. We're all a lay church and we need to give people a lot of slack and be grateful for their service. And if someone doesn't know how to counsel you correctly. Don't be mad at him. He's just a volunteer. He didn't, he's doing the best he can, or she's doing the best she can. It's, he's saying, support each other, sustain each other. I love the idea that the mantle of the Lord blesses us, but it is our hands that are sustaining each other. Verse 14 in the NIV reads, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive and encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. And then he goes on to talk about our relationships with God. So he's, he's finished talking about relationships with people. And in verse 16 to 22, I'm still in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he now talks about our need to draw on the powers of heaven. He says in verse 16, rejoice evermore. And going all the way down to verse 22, I'm just going to read some of these. They're beautiful. Pray without ceasing or constantly is another translation. In everything, give thanks, or in every circumstance, whatever. Quench not the spirit, or in other translations, don't stifle the spirit. Despise not prophesying, or don't reject even the prophecies either. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. 
abstain from all appearances of evil. These are powerful statements on how we can go through the refiner's fire and come out stronger. And those of us that are already partaking in the sacrament and doing our best can apply these things every hour of our lives. And then Paul gives his final blessings in this letter, in chapter 5, verse 23 to 28. And I'll read from the NIV, starting with verse 25. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. And skipping down to verse 27, have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. You know, this is, I want everybody to hear this. And then he closes it up. And we'll now start with 2 Thessalonians. This is also written in close proximity, um, probably again in the second mission, with just a few months after the first was written. In this second letter of Thessalonians, the three main themes that Paul emphasizes are he hears that they are really being persecuted. And so he wants to talk about how to endure persecution, about Christ's second coming, and about the need to work together. It's a, it's a very good unifying letter. I'll just go a little bit through the outline here. He first gives salutations and thanksgivings in the first four verses, and then chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, to persevere through these persecutions. Then he gives this beautiful prayer. He actually gives three prayers in this letter. Um, but verses 11 and 12 is the first prayer. And then chapter 2, he turns to the second coming. And he first talks about the apostasy and Satan's power. And then he gives another beautiful prayer for them. And then in chapter 3, he requests their prayers. And they all need to work together. And he gives another prayer in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 3. And then his final salutations. But they think that's probably added, added a little bit later. Let's start by reading chapter 1, verse 2. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just how he starts Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Thessalonians. Uh, you know, this grace and peace. It's grace is um, the Greek greeting and then shalom would be the Hebrew greeting or the Aramaic. So he has this great way of combining those two. Verse four and five in the NIV reads, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, we do not encourage self-inflicted, as I talked about last week. Uh, self-inflicted pain is not what God asks for. But he does allow us to receive pain and persecution and to suffer so that we can fall on our knees and receive the strength of God and be empowered by him and become a new person through our Savior. We also read about this in Acts chapter 5, Romans 8, Philippians 1. You know, all these are in my handout. I've got several of them where the saints are persecuted and the Lord brings them through. Going back, though, to chapter 1, let's continue on in verse 6 and 7 in the NIV. God is just. He will pay back troubles to those who trouble you and give relief to you when you are troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. It sounds like Paul thinks it's just right around the corner, but in another chapter, he'll go back and address the timing. Right now, though, he's just encouraging them to persevere during the persecution. And in verses 5 to 10, that's his whole theme. I'll just read verses 9 and 10 in the JST. Who shall be punished with 
destruction. Now, the word that he crossed out there is everlasting destruction. Joseph felt so strongly that heaven was a place where there was forgiveness, there were second chances, there's third chances, and that, that we will all be resurrected and that all will receive a kingdom of glory. And what we really, really desire in our hearts is what we do. And so if you really, really desire it, you will act in accordance what God is asking us to do. Verses six to eight in the ESV reads, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. But when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. So you get the image that Paul really thinks this is going to happen and that all these people are hurting them are going to be immediately punished. And that is something that early Christianity had to deal with for years and years because it didn't happen. It hasn't happened. It's millennium now and we're still waiting. Verse 11 and 12 is this beautiful first prayer. We pray always for you that he may count you worthy of his calling of our God so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and in him. That's the BLB translation. Then in chapter two, Paul moves on to the second coming. And it's all about how to prepare for it from verses one to 15. I'd like to read from verse three in the Joseph Smith translation, chapter two, verse three. Let no man deceive you by any means. And then he crosses out a whole bunch and he said, there shall come a falling away first. Now, do you remember back in Acts, they talked about there were wolves in the church. There were wolves dressed in sheep's clothing kind of imagery. But here, this falling away is referred to as a rebellion in the RSV or the NIV or a revolt in the Jerusalem Bible. Or I love the NAB, a mass apostasy. Now, Paul is telling them loud and clear, Christ is going to come. Everything's going to be equal and, and there, there will be a punishment afflicted, but it's not going to come until there is a mass apostasy. Verse three reads, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now in Latin, perdition means to destroy. You know, this is not just a happen chance. It's planned defection. It's desertion. Um, in fact, I like some of the other translations. To rebel the lost one is the JB. A man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, has also the name of wickedness. You know, this apostasy was not a passive movement. The devil planned it. It's dangerous. It's, it's well worked out. And all his minions are now working full force. In fact, we just heard from the prophet four times as much. Chapter 2, verse 4 in the NIV reads, He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he, meaning the devil, sets itself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So this is just two decades after Christ's ministry. This was not passive, nor was it gradual. Jesus foretold about it. Do you remember in Matthew 24? He, he gives them all this information, and now Paul's just reminding them that, that this is part of God's plan, but we can be saved and we can either come with him as angels from the other side of the veil or be on earth still and, and join him that way. Both will be united. Chapter two, verse seven has another very long translation from the Joseph Smith translation. And it, it shows how Christ is in control of the situation. We can trust in God. He knows what's happening. I'll read to you from the JST. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. And then here's the addition. He it is who now worketh, and Christ suffereth him to work. 
until the time is fulfilled that he shall be taken out of the way. So it's, it's God's allowing this because when we have uh, opposition, it sometimes spurs us into acting more valiantly and, and taking us closer to our Savior. Verse 9 in the BSB reads, The coming of the lawless one, that's, that's Satan again, will be accompanied by the working of Satan with every kind of power and sign and false wonder. Satan and his minions have had a long time to learn how to make counterfeits. And not just with Moses in Pharaoh's palace did he make things look like they were happening. But in our own age, we see Satan working over time. In fact, our prophet said in 2018, in the coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. This was repeated and repeated and repeated. In one conference, it was repeated four times. We have got to hold on to the Word of God and, and, and seek greater spiritual manifestations and, and seek the gifts of the Spirit and exert more faith because that will be the only way we can hold on during all these temptations of the devil. There's another good Joseph Smith translation edition in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And you'll see that he, he puts in perspective the falling away. Joseph added, Yea, the Lord, even Jesus, whose coming is not until after there cometh a falling away, and then back to the King James, by the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying and wonders and skipping ahead to verse 10, because they received not the love of truth. We have to want to love truth more than we want to love to be politically correct or to be socially acceptable or to assume that what our culture has taught us is right is right. No, God has taught us what is right. That's where we need to go. I don't know if you remember back in your church history days, but I think one of Joseph Smith's favorite topics was the gifts of the Spirit. And his, his nephew, George A. Smith, said the thing that Joseph spoke more on than anything else was the gift of the discernment of spirits because he felt it was so needed to discern what is right from wrong. And Brigham Young picks up on the same thing. And I'll quote from the Journal of Discourses here. In all this, the power of the devil is limited, but the power of God is unlimited. Back to Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is the NIV. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Do you remember what he's talking about here with the first fruits? That's one of the things that was harvested first and taken to the temple. That was their tithes in whatever fruit production it was. You took your first fruits, instead of feeding your hungry family, you took it to God and fed the priests, and you used it as an offering. And then they would be allowed to feed, and the Lord promises that he will feed you if you give to them first. So these first fruits are what is sanctified, what is, what is given to God. It's very sacred. And he's saying, you are the first fruits. You're the ones that mean the most to me because you're given to God. It sounds as if the early Christians were very interested in the timing of the second coming. I think I'm very interested in the timing of the second coming. But Brigham gave some caution on that one too, and I'd like to read to you from him. Do not be too anxious for the Lord to hasten his work. Let our anxiety be centered upon this one thing, the sanctification of our own hearts, the purifying of our affections, 
the preparing of ourselves for the approach of the events that are hastening upon us. This should be our concern. This should be our study. This should be our daily prayer. Seeking to have the spirit of Christ that we may wait patiently the time of the Lord and prepare ourselves the times that are coming. This is our duty. Isn't that a great motivating message? Paul next gives his second prayer or blessing in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. And I'll just read part of it in the NIV. God, our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Paul talks two or three times about the need to be self-sufficient, the need to work with your own hands. You recall back in the book of Acts, Paul was a tent maker and he joined Aquila and Priscilla and made tents with them to pay his way. And so this becomes a theme in chapter three from verses six to 15, this need to, we all need to work. It's part of the law of consecration. We all have to work. We can do what we can. I'll read just from six and seven in the NIV. We command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive. Follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. Next, Paul requests their prayers. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Finally, pray for us, brothers and sisters, that the Lord's message may spread, that we may be delivered from, skipping ahead a little bit, from the evil people. And then down to verse 3, And he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. This is a promise that has been restored. Those of us that have taken upon ourselves our covenants in the temple are promised that we will not be destroyed until our mission is complete if we live the teachings of our Savior. And I guess he got some reports that there were some pretty lazy people because in verse 13, he says, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. And, you know, as a mom of little kids, I was always tired. And now in my life, I am often tired. Um, But he says, don't be tired of well-doing. Allow the Spirit to rejuvenate you. In chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, I want to read from the NIV. It says, take special note of anyone who does not obey. Don't associate with them. Skipping up to verse 15. Do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. You know, don't follow bad examples, even if they're within the church. You know, you can love them, but don't follow them. And then it ends with his own handwritten script, as he usually does. Verse 17 reads, Salutation from Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, in a day and age where letters could be very easily captured and torn and replaced and misunderstood and communication was so carefully taken out and these early saints were in desperate need to communicate as the flock was being persecuted and so Paul sent Timothy and Silas and others back and forth back and forth getting these letters I am so grateful that we can get on our knees and hear from the spirit and we can listen to the words of the prophet as well as read them. May you draw closer to the Lord as we study these wonderful books of First and Second Thessalonians this week, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.